Hello and welcome to The Virtue Podcast. I am your host, Shona Virtue. And if you're new here, The Virtue Podcast is a wellness podcast, but we aim to explore wellness through the biopsychosocial model. Because of this, we take a much broader perspective on what it is to be well than I think is often taken in mainstream health and fitness conversation. Now, we have a big podcast today. I say big because we have a lot to cover. If you can bear with me right to the end, I will absolutely make this worth your while and it's going to change the way that you think about any health behavior, be it fitness, dieting, letting go of your ex, not texting your ex, not having sex with your ex, like any health behavior, you name it. If you're trying to achieve it, if you're trying to turn it into a habit, then I know that these models that I'm about to take you through are going to help. Now, I just want to share something quickly. Okay, I should have come across these things way, way earlier. And I have a conspiracy theory. My conspiracy theory is that Big Pharma is hiding, is gatekeeping the health behavior models from us so that we can't take preventative health into our hands. I'm obviously joking. I'm obviously joking. I don't think that at all. Some of this information, I didn't start learning this until 2021. And I had been a PT for way, way longer than that, but had never come across health behavior models and health psychology, really, not really. And I think it's a real shame. So I really wanted to bring this to you. I don't want to digress. We have a huge chunk of stuff to get through before the actual strategies that I want to share with you. So I want you to just like, you know, settle in, get comfy, get a blanket, or if you're on a walk, turn up the volume, but not too loud because, you know, we stay engaged with our surroundings. We're street smart. We stay ready. You know what I mean? Now, (laughs) a little preview of what we're going to discuss today. A little rodeo mapio roadmap, if you will, outlining what we're going to go through in this podcast today, because I think it's just going to help you a little bit to kind of like for me to signpost where we're at and where we're going to be headed. Okay. So first and foremost, I'm just going to cover what is health psychology exactly. Then we're going to talk about what is a model. And then we're going to talk about what is a model in the context of health psychology. I'm going to talk through the health belief model, which is, you know, one of the most widely used models in terms of getting people to engage with health behaviors. And I'm going to talk about how we as everyday people, not just health professionals, but as everyday people can use this stuff to our advantage. Okay, let's have a little sound bold interlude to just cleanse the palate. That's right. Take a deep breath in, full breath out, engage full receptivity mode because this is going to shift some things regarding your habits. I can feel it. You know, Atomic Habits, never heard of her. <laughs> I don't know why I keep bringing that book up. I love that book so much. It's such a great book. But I just, this health belief model, I mean, like, uh, you're going to love it. I hope you're going to love it. Anyway, all right, let's just firstly cover, you know, what is health psychology? So health psychology is a specialized field within psychology that focuses really, I would say, on the intersection between psychological, behavioral and physiological processes in health and fitness. And so that's obviously, obviously why I like it so much. Okay, because it comes back to that biopsychosocial model. It aims to really understand the psychological factors that influence physical health and disease super important, right? As well as how we might cope with illness, manage stress, promote healthful behaviors. 
So health psychologists work in various settings, right? Like from clinical and research roles all the way to public policy and health promotion campaigns. And we're going to talk more about that in a second because I've got some cool history stories. I mean, I think they're cool, I guess. That depends on what you think is cool. <laughs> this discipline acknowledges the biopsychosocial model and it emphasizes that interconnectedness between biology, psychology, and socio environmental factors, right? Through research interventions and public health campaigns, health psychologists, I would say, are really struggling to struggling. Maybe struggling is not the right word. Maybe, maybe they do. They probably do struggle on a day-to-day basis, like all human beings. They really strive, I would say, to enhance healthcare delivery, inform health policy, improve patient outcomes. They are working in collaboration with other healthcare professionals to really design and implement health behavior interventions. Amazing, right? Let me tell you, no one was working with the PTs, the yoga teachers, the group fitness instructors on any of this. We didn't get taught this. I mean, I certainly didn't. I feel like as trainers, as coaches, as fitness professionals, yoga teachers, group fitness instructors, we're often at the front line with a lot of these things, particularly if we're focusing on preventative health. So what is a model in psychological behavioral science? A model in psychological behavioral sciences refers to a systematic representation or framework that describes and explains certain aspects of human behavior. Now, models often, I guess, offer a structured approach to understanding complex phenomena by breaking them down into manageable components. They help in making predictions, guiding research and developing interventions. Now, remember that these models, they might be graphical, mathematical, or verbal representations. And they allow researchers and practitioners to test hypotheses, develop theories, better understand the mechanisms behind certain behaviors. And by refining and validating these models over time, the field of health psychology can really advance in its understanding of human behavior and its determinants. So I'm going to give you more examples. When I first learned this, I didn't even really know what a model was, right? I know that sounds ridiculous. I realized that if I had to define it, I couldn't explain it. So a good example of a model is like the solar system model that we're all shown in school. It gives you a basic understanding of planets in our solar system and how they orbit the sun. But what it probably can't give are some of the more complex aspects of astronomy or planetary science, right? Like the fact that distances in the solar system are commonly measured in astronomical units. And an AU is simply the average distance between the Earth and the sun, which is, for anyone listening almost 150 kilometers away. Uh, Did I say that? 150 million. Did I skip the million? Yeah. 150 kilometers away. Well, we would all be pretty burnt to a crisp. So to throw a spanner in the works, however, we know that the Earth's orbit around the sun is an ellipse. It's not this perfect circle. But when you look at the diagrams of the model, sometimes it doesn't really give you that detail. And the Earth's distance is not always the same away from the sun. So that's why it's an average. Anyway, the point is, is that a model can give you this overview. So we get this overview of the planets. We get this overview of the order that they're in and maybe some of the way that they move. But it doesn't necessarily give you some of the more intricate details. It just gives you a funnel, a way to essentially funnel behaviors into categories so that we can start to see these patterns. Does that make sense? So if you think about 
I, I know maybe the solar system concept is confusing, but if you think about that in terms of psychology, because psychology has so many variables, we need to be able to look at patterns of behavior in certain categories. And then we can watch what happens as people go through something. This leads me to my next point, right? What are health behavior models? Okay, so a health behavior model is like a theoretical framework that we can use to understand, predict and change these health related behaviors. Now, they help to identify factors that influence whether we're going to engage in a behavior or not. So let's just go with exercise. This is a really easy one. I know I should do it, but something or some things are preventing me from engaging or not engaging in the exercise. Right. So if you think about a map, we need to get from A which metaphorically might be like A represents being a five packs a day smoker. I don't know where that came to mind. I don't smoke, never have. To B, quitting smoking or like just identifying as not a smoker. But what has to happen to get me from A, five packs a day, to B, totally nothing, is explained by the health behavior models. Okay, or can be explained by the health behavior models. Not so much what's gonna what it's gonna take, but at least like what it's gonna take to get me to engage in the behavior. So they really do play a crucial role in health promotion and disease prevention efforts. Let's look at a couple of examples. Okay, or actually we're just gonna look at one today because it's so big. I mean, there's loads. There's like the trans theoretical model, there's theory of planned behavior, there's the health belief model. I really wanna hone in on this health belief model. So the health belief model is one of the most widely used conceptual frameworks for understanding health behavior. And I think that its origins have a pretty cool story. So the US Public Health Service initially developed the health belief model to explain why so few people were participating in tuberculosis screening programs, even though they had been provided with free or easily accessible services. And prior to the invention of TB-specific antibiotics, tuberculosis was really a leading cause of death in many countries, including the US, right? So it was like pretty important. And yet for some reason, they just couldn't seem to get people to engage with these free services. So they had these like trucks, they would park them in the streets and they would just be like free tuberculosis screenings. And yet they just couldn't seem to get people to engage with something that was seemingly really convenient and easy and didn't cost them anything. So the health belief model was designed to understand the decision-making process that people like us undergo when we're considering a preventative health action. So if you have a truck parked outside your house with a bunch of highly qualified 1950s nurses in it ready to test you for tuberculosis so that you can be prescribed the meds to get better, why, 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 what would prevent you from doing it? So the health belief model has since been applied to like a gazillion other health behaviors, conditions way, way, way beyond tuberculosis, like smoking cessation, like even obesity and all the kind of things that fall within the notion of, or it's not a notion, but, but obesity. So how does it work? It is based on the idea that individuals will take action to prevent illnesses if they believe that such an action will be beneficial. Maybe you are thinking, Shona, is this really news? Did we need a whole model to tell us that we're going to engage in something if we think and only if we think it's beneficial? I hear you. And I thought the same thing when I first read about this and was first taught about this until we go a little deeper. So bear with me. The model 
the health belief model highlights several key components. We're going to really use these to sift through our own practices here. Perceived susceptibility, perceived severity, perceived benefits, perceived barriers, cues to action, and later on, self-efficacy came into the game. So if we're thinking about this truck, right, this tuberculosis truck parked at the front of our house, we've seen TB all around us. We've seen it kind of impact us in certain ways. Maybe it's been friends of friends or families, or maybe it's actually been our partner. We're going to have different levels of, remember step one, perceived susceptibility. So some people are going to think that they're very susceptible to contracting it if someone in their family contracted it, right? If it's not been in your family history in any way or in your community history in any way, you're probably going to have very low susceptibility or perceived susceptibility to it. Next thing is perceived severity. So these two kind of work hand in hand, right? Because maybe you think, ugh, it's not so bad. It's a little, it's a little cough, you know, a little... <coughs> What's a big deal? It's no problem. And so maybe you don't think that the disease is a big problem, right? Maybe you just think it's not a big deal. If I get it, I get it. I'll be fine. So that's perceived severity. Other people might be like, I do not want to get that. I'm absolutely going to take care of myself to prevent this. Okay. And they'll be more likely to engage in something. Number three, we have perceived benefits. So what would be the benefits of engaging with this behavior? Well, again, that's going to be dependent upon those first two, but also maybe other things like, oh, I'm like, I really care about my kids. You know, I really want to be able to stay alive for them. So that's a benefit in and of itself, right? Then we have perceived barriers. What are your barriers to engaging with that truck? You know, going up and getting tested. Well, I have kids, as I said before, and yeah, I want to stay alive for them, but also they're pretty goddamn demanding. I don't have time for this. I don't have time to go outside to the truck and get tested. Maybe a perceived barrier is also like, do I really want to know? Would I be happier just living a life in ignorant bliss? Maybe. So that could also be a barrier. Okay, we're almost at the end. Cues to action. So cues to action would be like whether you see it in your community or not. I don't mean seeing it in your community in relation to whether people have had tuberculosis, but in this case in particular, it's like what is a cue to get you to action that health behaviour? In this case, the trucks are the cues, right? The trucks parked outside your house are probably cueing you to get into action to this health behavior. But if you live somewhere where there aren't trucks or maybe you don't pass the truck on your way home, whatever the case may be, you miss that and you don't see it. What else is reminding you that that health behavior is something worth engaging in? If there's nothing, well, then you're not going to do it, right? And then as I said, a little bit later on, they also realized that and when I say they, these psychologists and researchers realized that self-efficacy was something that was really important. Now, self-efficacy interacts with every single one of these. Now, I talk about it a little bit in my Instagram, but essentially, in this case, self-efficacy would be how much do I think I can engage in this behavior? Do I really think that I could commit? So as you can see, that kind of concept would interact with each one of them. It would interact with perceived benefits, perceived barriers, and really heavily interacts with those two, I would say, because an easier example than this one, right, than this tuberculosis one would be exercise. And this is why personal trainers, coaches, like we know that you having high levels of self-advocacy is really important. You could think of self-advocacy as self-belief because we know that if you don't think that you're going to be able to commit to a program that we write you, it doesn't matter if you can or you can't, you won't. 
right? You just won't. Because if you don't believe that you can do it, you're not going to be able to do it. And this is the reality of self-efficacy and the importance that it plays in this whole health belief model. And I'm just going to enter in a little side note here because I know I've dumped a whole bunch of stuff on you. But this is why what I eat in a day videos really work for people. This is why they're so addictive is because they make it look like if you eat like that, you're going to look like that. They make the whole process seem a lot easier. And that's what we need. We need to have that feeling like looking at a certain behavior and being able to say, you know what, I can absolutely achieve that. But guess what? And I talk about this in relation to gym confidence too. The only way that you are going to develop self-efficacy is if you go through that rough patch of not having any <laughs> and just kind of faking it till you make it. You have to just believe in yourself knowing that it is going to be hard and that there is going to be a learning curve. So in the health belief model, if you believe that you're susceptible to condition like a disease and that has a serious consequence, you're going to be more likely and more motivated to adopt these behaviors to prevent it, right? And so we know that if we come back to that perceived susceptibility, this is another side note, but it's not a side note. It's like, it's, I think it's really important, particularly if you're consuming content online, which is <laughs> most of us, right? The reason that a lot of stuff has become very, what's the word, alarmist in a way, is because we need to get you to believe that you are highly susceptible to this problem in order to motivate you to engage with this problem. For example, I mean, I'm just pulling something out of my ear hole right now. I don't know why I said the ear hole. I went to say butthole and then I was like, Shona, you don't need to, just don't, just keep it out of the gutter, mate. Just like, you know, it's just, we don't need to go there. So let's say like, if I say to you, bananas make you fat, right? Let's say I say that. I have to pull some real alarmist stuff to get you to believe that, to get you to stop eating bananas. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. This is a ridiculous example. But do you know what I mean? So it's like sometimes this stuff gets so alarming online because it's about getting you to engage with it. We're not going to talk about this now because there's going to be way too much talking and I want to pull you back to this kind of health belief model and how you can really use it in your own life. But when you consume content online, you're not going to be able to unsee or unhear what I've told you about this, particularly if you're engaging with health content, because you're going to be able to see susceptibility, severity, benefits, barriers, cues to action in all of it. Okay, so we'll talk about it more. What I wanted to do was take a, a more concrete look at a systematic review of some of the research on mental health help seeking in young people so that you kind of have a study to kind of attach it to. And then after that, we're going to talk about how we can really start to apply it to our own life. So basically these researchers and also for the record, any study that I reference here, I'll put it in the show notes. So these researchers wanted to know what the perceived barriers were. Okay, so they were just taking one portion of the model they wanted to see what the perceived barriers were to getting young people to seek help for their mental health. And what they found was that perceived stigma and embarrassment, problems in recognizing symptoms, so poor mental health literacy, and a preference for self-reliance as the most important barriers to help seeking. What does that really mean? You can see how something like this would influence health policy. Because when you look at research like this, you might turn around and say, well, we need to stop these teenagers from feeling stigma and embarrassment. Oh, and we also need to help them to recognize their symptoms. We better get some mental health campaigns out there, which help to improve that mental health literacy. How about 
self-reliance. How do we get around that? Okay, let's do a campaign on it's okay to not be okay. Talk to others, lean on others. It's cool to ask your friends for help, that sort of thing, right? So you can see how these would shape policy and campaigns and health campaigns. You can also see how it might help your relationship with your own kids or with other people when you start looking at this and think, okay, there's a health behavior I really want my teenager or my partner or someone to to engage with. What are the potential barriers that they may have? So we're going to do an exercise right now for ourselves. Okay, I know it's been a lot. Let's have another little sound interlude of a sound bowl. Okay, beautiful. Cleanse that palate, that intellectual palate. I want you to take a moment right now to think about something in your life, a health behavior that you're working on, but you aren't quite able to commit to, to something that's been just irking you for a while. Maybe it's like vaping, quitting vaping. Maybe it's exercising maybe it's let's let's take exercising actually because it's just a really easy one for me to kind of throw at you and I'm going to run it through all of the health belief model you wish you exercised more perceived susceptibility well with that one we might be looking more at what are the consequences of not right so what are the consequences of not okay might be certain elements that are not so great for you and if you think that you're susceptible to those like menopause or the symptoms of menopause that come up if we don't exercise maybe it's weight gain maybe it's osteoporosis sarcopenia some of those things so if you don't think that you're going to get any of those issues then maybe that's going to prevent you a little bit from really engaging so your perceived susceptibility to the consequences of not engaging in that behavior should be considered right with exercise what else could happen? You feel sluggish. Again, there's that weight gain, there's body composition issues, there's things that are just going to irritate you around that. What about perceived severity? If you're one of those people who like maybe just don't really care about exercise, never have, and therefore don't feel like it's such a bad thing without it, your sense of severity is not going to be very high. And this is something you're probably going to have to grapple with if you don't think that it's important to to exercise for whatever reason, then yes, you're going to have to consider like, how do I then start to increase my sense of severity for not engaging with this behavior? Then we can move into perceived barriers. What are some of the barriers to action on your exercise? Could be time, kids, responsibilities, not knowing what to do, not having confidence, you know, trying but failing in the past, any of those sorts of things. So what is the number one thing there? And can you really start to unpack it a little bit? Is it really true? And now normally if we were working together and I was utilizing some of the cognitive behavioral techniques, which we will talk about in later episodes, I promise, then we would be looking at what are some of your maladaptive cognitions? What are your sort of maladaptive concepts around these sorts of things like time? Time is really just a question of value. And therefore we all have this time. I'm not going to say we all have the same amount of time because we definitely have different choices we've made in our lives, which have led to certain responsibilities coming up for us. So it's not fair to just kind of be like, we all have the same hours in the day, but definitely there's this question of time and value that we can kind of put together. And so if that is one of your barriers, how can you just maybe start to unpick it a little bit? What about perceived benefits? Now, listing off benefits of exercise can be really, really helpful, but we don't want to over-index on this one. And this is the one that I find gets over-indexed on the internet all the time in social media. It's like, you know, do this for this and do that for that. Do this and you get a bigger butt. Do that and you'll get a six pack. Do this. And it's just, it starts to get a bit overwhelming. So we want to make sure that there's a balance there, that we're not just over-indexing on benefits. We've got cues to action. 
So this is a big one because it's often overlooked. James Clear does talk about it a little bit in Atomic Habits, really shouting out this book. Wish I had some commission rights on that. Anyway, he says a lot about this idea of remind us to engage with a certain goal. And for some people that might be as simple as like just seeing the yoga mat on the floor. For the Virtue Crew, it's like they know that seeing that keeping the kettlebell, their band and everything next to the TV so that when they do the program, when they do my program and it's a follow-along program or one of them is a follow-along program, they kind of get reminded each day to action on that task, to action on that health behavior. So that might be something that you want to consider if you're not exercising enough, what could you do in your life to remind you to exercise? Leaving shoes by the door, exercise shoes by the door. Is it putting it in your calendar and having it kind of shoot up as a reminder? And then last but not least, self-efficacy, which I already gave you a huge spiel on, but this is so important. And yet at the same time, we can't be just relying on it because one of the questions I get all the time is, Shona, how do I develop more confidence in the gym? And I think you can't develop confidence in the gym until you start going to the gym and you move past that discomfort. The only way is through there. So you need to sort of cultivate a little bit of self-belief that's like, you know what? I may not know how to do this now, but I believe in my ability to push through the discomfort. And therefore that is your self-efficacy right? It may not be self-efficacy of being able to actually engage in exercise, but the self-efficacy that you do have is knowing that you are a strong and capable person. I'm going to leave you on that thought. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today. For any personal trainers, coaches, anyone listening that works in the health and fitness industry, please, please think about this health belief model and think about how you can actually start to Consider these factors when it comes to getting your clients to engage with a new program or a new health behavior that you want them to embark upon, because this is very well researched stuff has been through rigorous, rigorous empirical testing. And I highly recommend it. Like I said, there's other ones, there's trans theoretical model, there's theory of planned behavior, even Bender's social cognitive theory also talks about this stuff. And look, we can unpack these at a later date, but I've kind of inundated you. So I want to leave you with that. Please make sure that you subscribe. Please also let me know in the, I was going to say in the comments below, it's not quite the same as Instagram. It's not quite the same as other other social media channels, but please let me know wherever you can, your feedback on the podcast. Also leave a review if you can. Also a star review if you can't be bothered writing a full comment, which totally fair enough. I get it. We all have time constraints, but it definitely helps obviously to support the podcast, get this message out there, but it helps me to understand, gauge things and gauge whether you guys are interested in these topics or not. And just keep going. Love your work. And I will see you on the mat. (laughs) I'm going to think of a better outro. (laughs) See you soon, guys. Thank you. Thank you.